Let's read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. And it reads, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And a quick little note before we dive into just a general verse-by-verse teaching in Hebrews 2 is to remind their family to not be governed by fear in the days that we live in. We can be just watching the news. Maybe you're that type of person during the hurricane that you just got to watch the news 24-7 even though the hurricane's moving five miles an hour and you're just constantly getting more nervous. You're constantly getting more anxious. Be in prayer. Don't let fear overtake you. Be wise as a serpent. Be gentle as a dove. Again, be wise. But we're back to the book of Hebrews, the great book of coffee within the Bible, right? As we learned last week, men, that's our job in the home. He brews. He brews the coffee at home. Nothing else but the coffee. Uh, So for us, what do we need to be reminded of? We need to be reminded that this book was written to Christians. This book, it wasn't written to unbelievers. It wasn't written as a book to try to share the gospel with. This book was written with many warnings and many encouragements for Christians just like us. And that's why we're reading it today. And we should see each of the warnings here as warnings being given to someone who truly is a believer in Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, we looked at how Christ, he's greater than the prophets of old, and how he's even greater than the angels. And we're going to look a little bit more in chapter 2, how Christ is greater than the angels. Then chapter 3, it'll start moving into Moses and the law, and it keeps going through the progression. But we're here. Chapter 2, let's read verse 1 through 4. It reads, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest We drift away, for the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, and various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Again, last time we were together, we got to dive into the majesty and the power of who Jesus Christ was and is and is to come. We looked at, for Him, once He was done on the cross, saying it was finished, that He's not still working. Thank the Lord. We know that He's praying on our behalf He's interceding on our behalf in heaven, in the throne room, to the Lord for us. But he's seated at the throne. And the author of Hebrews used that as a reminder that angels, they're continuing to serve. They're continuing to work. We even looked at one of the verses in chapter 1 that gives us the idea that each of us have a guardian angel protecting our lives. 
And some of us, we keep them busier than others, right? And angels, they're constantly working. They're constantly working. But Christ, he was able to say, right, it is finished, paid in full. That first work that he had to accomplish on our behalf, that we would have salvation. And because of Jesus Christ's superiority to the prophets of old and his superiority even to the angels, now we must, as Verse 1 says, give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. And if we don't, we will drift away. The reminder that if we are not constantly obeying God's word, we will drift away. If we're not constantly obeying, hearing God's word, you have to hear it in order to know what you have to obey. But if we're not obeying it, we will drift away. The Bible says it. If the Bible says it. It's true, right? Am I the only one that believes that? No, right? So if the Bible says if you don't obey God's word, you will drift away. Guess what happens if you don't obey God's word? You're going to drift away. Whether it's a big part of obedience or you think it's just a small part of obedience, if we don't obey God's word, we will drift away. And I love Chuck Smith. He gave a few warnings of things that we drift away from. Again, 10, 20 years ago, and it's the very same things believers struggle with and drifting away from today. The practical things we drift away from. First and foremost, we drift away from communicating with God. We can drift away from that. We get busy with our day or the constant noise of everything that's going on, and we don't set aside time to hear that still, small voice. That time to just sit still and just pray. To sit still in quietness and meditate on the Lord and the things of the Lord. The next thing we drift away from goes hand in hand. Reading the word of God. How we need both. We need the prayer time with God. But we also need to read his word to make sure that who we're hearing really is God. Sometimes we hear things and we think it's God. But it was the pepperoni pizza last night. Or the indigestion. Or maybe it was just our in-laws or our best friend and we just wanted to heed their counsel no we must do both we must stand and wait on the lord in stillness and quietness and we need to read his word and the final thing chuck smith wrote here is we drift away from assembling together we drift away from assembling together many times when people aren't doing so well with the lord they stop attending church on a consistent basis. It's just biblical. It's a biblical warning. If we stop assembling together with other believers, we will drift away. And again, drifting away, you don't have to do anything to do it. In the beach, how do you drift away? You just relax. You just sit back, put your feet up, sit in your favorite unicorn or flamingo or whatever giant float you have, right? And you just float away. And the same is true for us in our relationship with the Lord. We must Hold on. Now in verse 2, it tells us, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We need to be careful that we're not neglecting the word of God. But first and foremost, what is he talking about? The word spoken through angels being proved steadfast. Let's turn to Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, we see what the author of Hebrews, again, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Maybe it's Paul. Maybe it's Apollos, Barnabas. Again, if you like being the outsider, you may think it's uh, Priscilla and Aquila. But Acts chapter 7, 
Verse 52 and 53, it tells us, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. We can turn to Galatians chapter 3. Same idea here from Paul. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it tells us, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Scripture supports the idea that the law that was given to Moses was mediated by the angels. And many Jewish men and women, people who held to Judaism, this is what they believed. That Moses, man, he's the bomb, he's the man. But the person who gave him the law wasn't God himself. We know that scripture tells us no one has seen God. If someone would see God, they would die, they would pass out, that would be it. But we are blessed because our mediator is not just angels, but we're given Jesus Christ as our mediator. So if the law was given through angels and it was proved steadfast, which means that the law, it was a serious offense. The law was a serious teacher. Every transgression and every disobedience had to be paid for. Right? You want to have fun? Read through the book of Leviticus. Read through the book of Numbers. Right? And any mistake you make, bam, you're slammed for it. Someone has to die. Basically what happens. Right? You have an animal. By mistake, your animal hurt someone. Or God forbid your animal killed someone. That animal is dead. It's gone. Mistake doesn't matter. You do something wrong. You steal from someone. That's it. Some animal has to die. You have to pay them back. You have to pay them back with interest. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The old teacher, in a sense, was super, super strict. And I think we've been there, right? You have the super serious teacher that used to be a drill sergeant in Vietnam. And then you have the super relaxed, chill teacher that just wants to be your friend, doesn't want to cause problems. And how did you act in those classes, right? The teacher that you know you can get away with things, what do you do? Not you guys, right? Just me. I got away with things. That's what I would do. The teacher that wasn't paying attention, the teacher that would walk out of class thinking all the students are going to still behave, crazy things happened, right? I'm the only one. I'm that only student here, right? Crazy things happen the moment the relaxed teacher leaves. But the super strict teacher, the teacher that you're chewing your gum and you get the referral, you have your shirt untucked one time, there's no grace, that teacher you're paying attention to because you don't want to always get in trouble. So what the author here of Hebrews is warning us of is that if the old covenant, if the old law proved to be steadfast, proved to be super serious, proved to be super tough, and you paid attention to it, you did not neglect it, How in the world are we going to survive neglecting a greater teacher? How in the world are we going to survive a greater message, a greater covenant? How can we be relaxed with it? How can we not care about it? If the old one was mediated by angels and we took it serious, how much more should we take serious a covenant mediated by God himself? 
through Jesus Christ. But what do we tend to do? We tend to neglect it. Because he's, he's more gracious. He's not a bit more gracious. He's much more gracious than the old law. David Guzik, he points it out. It's a greater word bought by a greater person, having greater promises, and there will be a greater condemnation if it's neglected. Family, we will be under a greater condemnation if we neglect our relationship with Christ. If we neglect our salvation and When you neglect something, it's not necessarily on purpose. Just like when we drift away, it's not necessarily on purpose. That word neglect, it's to give little attention or respect to. It's to be careless with it. You just neglect it. You didn't pay attention to it. You didn't really respect it, so you were careless. Have you been there and you're at the fair, you pay your quarter, and you play the little game and you go home with a goldfish? How do you cherish that goldfish, right? Does it all of a sudden become the love of your life? And you go out and you buy a $1,000 tank and you buy all the filtration and you get a six-foot tank and you get the lights and it's only one little goldfish going around in there. No, you neglect that thing. It goes in a cup. It goes in a Tupperware. You're trying to hide it from your kids so you can flush it, hoping that they forget it because it's not that important. I got that thing for a quarter, I got it for a dollar. It's not that important. But if you're into maybe saltwater fish or freshwater fish and you go out and you buy a $50 fish, you go out and you buy a $150 emperor angel, you're going to take care of that little fishy. You're going to take care of it. You're going to put it in a specific quarantine tank. You're going to put the specific chemicals in there. You're going to try to hand feed that thing. You're going to be careful what other fish it's in with because it's important to you. Because there was a great price associated to that fish. So you're not going to neglect it because you respect it. You're not going to be careless with it because it's important to you. But family, the danger for us is the same danger for the Christians in the book of Hebrews. That we can make light of our salvation. We can make light of our relationship with Christ Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 22 And here we get a great picture of people who made light of their invitation from God himself. Matthew chapter 22. And in verse 1, this is Christ speaking. He's giving parables to them. And he tells them, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf. They're killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and they went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants And treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and he destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Family, we need to be careful that we do not make light of our relationship with Christ Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't make light of our salvation. That many times we refer to it as a gift, right? The free gift of the Lord. 
But there's a danger when you simply receive something as a gift that you don't cherish it because in a sense you didn't pay for it. That's the danger we say with the younger generations, right? That they're just given something so they're, they're not going to take care of it. It was just given to them. They don't know the blood, sweat, and tears that happened to make this gift appear. So now they're just going to neglect it. They're going to make light of it. And we have the very same warning that our relationship with Christ, it is a gift, but it's not only a gift. It is salvation. We say, hey, I'm saved. Are you saved? Saved from what? What are you saved from? Do you realize what we are saved from? Hell for all of eternity. Separation from God. We're saved from fear and anxiety. We're saved from being entangled and owned by sin and Satan for all of eternity. Do we realize that? Are we grateful for that saying, he saved me. He pulled me out of the fire and he saved me. There's this soldier, I love to listen to him and his stories, and they ask him, man, how do you work so hard? How do you sleep so little? How are you always and always and always on your mission? And he says, because I had brothers who died by my side. I had brothers who died in war, so I'm living the life that they're not getting to live. But for us, it's far greater because God himself sent his son to die taking our place. Again, family, what are we saved from? It's a gift, but we can neglect it. It's not simply a gift. It is salvation. It is freedom. It's being saved for all of eternity. Have you ever been shown grace by a police officer? You see the lights and you think, oh, no, right? You know you were speeding. You knew that you just ate that stop sign. You rolled right through it and you pull over. And hopefully you're gracious, you're kind. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And for whatever reason, they show you grace. How do you drive away from that moment? <laughs> you just floor it and you just fishtail on out of there and you're just driving nuts all over again? No, right? What do you do? Make sure your seatbelt's on. You put your hands on the steering wheel perfectly. The radio's off. You put it in drive and you just slowly roll out of there, right? Because you don't want to neglect what you were just saved from. That's how we need to treat the Lord. Not living a life that's constantly in sin and out of sin. Not living a life saying, hey, you saved me once. Watch this 360, right? Watch what I'm about to do. But we live a life saying, Lord, I'm so grateful that you saved me. Perhaps you've had a teacher that extends your deadline. You failed, you messed up, and the teacher says, hey, I'm going to give you another week to turn in the assignment. I think we have both types of people in this room, right? There's some people, we still didn't turn in the assignment, even though we were given more grace. And then there's some people right away, they turn it in the next day. They worked on it over and over and over again. How do we treat our salvation? And Jesus' very name means salvation. Jesus, it means Joshua, and Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is our salvation forever, for all of eternity. A.R. Fawcett, he says, Jesus, whose very name means salvation, including not only deliverance, from our enemies and from death and the grant of temporal blessings which the law promised to the obedient. But we also have the grace of the Spirit. We also have forgiveness of our sins. We also have the promise of heaven. We also have glory and eternal life for forever. Family, do we cherish our salvation? 
Because it's not only, hey, you're going to have freedom from hell, but you have to be a slave. Life is going to be terrible. Life is going to stink. But we get to have it all. We get to have salvation, and yet he promises us a peace that goes beyond understanding. He promises to give us boldness. He promises to give us a perfect love. He promises to not, call, to not leave us as orphans, but bring us into the family of God. He gives us so much. And are we thankful for it? Are we grateful for it? In Hebrews chapter 12, again, there's a warning to these believers. This same warning for us in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 through 29. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice shook the earth, but now he has promising, yet once more I shake, not the earth only, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, is this how we reference our relationship with the Lord? That I have a godly fear. I have reverence. I have respect towards him. I'm aiming my life that I pray, I hope that I'm serving him acceptably. I'm not just assuming things. I'm hoping that I'm doing enough for him. And we're blessed. He's not only our master and Lord, but he's our dad. He's our father. Jesus will look at later on. He calls us brother. Sister, we're blessed with so many things, but do we respect him? Do we respect him? Are we aiming, Lord, I want to serve you with godly fear because I know you are a consuming fire. I'm not going to just neglect this salvation. I want to take care of it. I want to cherish it. Lord, one day I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We go back to Hebrews chapter 2. And now in verse 5, the author goes back to showing and revealing how Christ, once again, he's greater than the angels. Because we, as humans, we were made a little lower than the angels. And here we get references to the book of Psalms and Samuel as well. Verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, 
that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Again, Christ, he didn't come as a different animal. He didn't come down as an angel. Christ came down as a man. Christ, he came down as a human. And we need to be reminded, when Jesus comes down, he was fully God and fully man. That's what God's word teaches. That's what we must believe. One of the first separations and one of the first, in a sense, cults after Christianity was saying that Christ, he wasn't really man, he was God. That he just floated around, that he just had the halo on his head. He wasn't really, really a man. No man could live perfectly. But when Christ comes, he is fully God and fully man. He's not some sort of eternal Oreo that on the outside he's God and on the inside he's man. Or on the opposite, oh, on the outside he's this. No, he is fully God and fully man. That's who Christ was. That's when he came down and that's why God put everything in subjection to man. In the garden, he tells Adam, hey, everything, it's under you. And I I love that thought, right, that we have subjection over the whole world. You think of the animals out there, the whales, the bears, everything that's out there. And man has subjection over those creatures and animals. But once man sinned, we lost that. We lost that ownership of this world. And in a sense now, Satan is the one who owns the planet by death by fear, right, by temptation. That's who's the one that owns the planet. We sing the song, right, who is worthy, who is worthy. I love that song. And it's talking about one day Christ will come and he's going to take the property deed of the earth. That's what that's talking about. But Satan is the one who has taken it. And now Christ comes as a man to now regain the ownership, to regain that everything is put under his feet, and one day everything will be under us. Even though we once forfeited it with our own sins, one day we will be the ones telling the angels where to go and what to do. One day we will be the ones judging the angels. Again, it's a crazy thought, but we're the ones that have the relationship with God. We're the ones that have the friendship with God. We're the ones that are able to taste of salvation from God. The angels don't get to taste of that. The angels, they don't get to see the the goodness of God the way we get to see it, the way we get to taste it, the way we get to feel it. They see it on the outside. We know that in the throne room of God, everybody's face is on the floor worshiping him. But we get to actually taste of it. We get to actually have this friendship and relationship with him. And again, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? Again, as you look into the stars, maybe down in Miami, because you can count how many stars there are in Miami with all the light pollution, they call it. But if you've been out in the Everglades, if you've been out in headwaters, you've been out in the middle of nowhere, and you look up and it's just, it's daunting. It's insane to look up, and now we think, God, he thinks of us. The size of the galaxy, the size of the universe, and God is thinking about you. God is wondering, hey, how, he's not wondering. He knows how we're doing, right? But he's thinking about you. He's mindful of you. Does that do anything to us or we just don't care about it? And now it tells us not only is he mindful of us, but that he's, he's coming to visit us. That each and every morning he's willing to visit us. He's willing to sit down and spend some time with us. The God, the creator of heaven and earth, and us, we're, we're terrible. We're made out of dust. We're made out of dirt. And yet he wants to spend time with us. We continue verse 8, right? 
He's put all things under his feet. That's Christ. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not to put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Again, just the glory of Christ. It's only through him that we're saved, family. It's only through him that we can get to heaven. It's only through him that there's salvation from hell for all of eternity. It's only through him that we will find true purpose. It's only through him that we can have an identity that's not shaken and not moved. It's only through him that we can find a peace that goes beyond our own understanding. It's only through him that we can have a joy that's not moved to and fro when things happen. It's only through Jesus Christ. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We spoke about it last time together. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. That Christ was there since the beginning of time, since before time began. Christ was there, knitting things together, making things together. We talked about, right, God, the Holy Spirit, and Christ. They all have their construction hats on, and they're starting to design the universe and starting to speak it into being. And that he continues to hold all things together. How time, physics, matter, all of this, it's held together by the Lord. And with all this power, with all this might, he comes down to earth to die for us. So that he can do what? Bring many sons to glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What a superhero name, right? Captain Salvation. That's who Christ is. He is Captain Salvation. He is the captain of saving And what does a captain do? A captain, he leads. The captain is the one who leads all the troops. Who's leading your life? Do we think that you can lead your, we can lead our own lives? I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. I'm going to force it. I'm going to name it and claim it. I'm going to speak it into existence. Or am I waiting on my captain? What are my orders? What would you have me to do? No, it it does. God's word says it does bother him, that he's, right, we just read it, he's a consuming fire. So we must continue in the process of sanctification. That's one of the marks, that's one of the proofs, hey, I am a believer. Not through my own work, not through my own sweat and tears, but from the inside out, the Lord is creating in me that that new heart. From the inside out, God is creating in me a new mind. Sometimes we think Christianity, it's just a new set of rules and regulations that we adopt. And in a sense, we're like, this may sound terrible. In a sense, we're like animals who are just being trained. And now you're being trained to do something different. I'm going to train you how to be a Christian. You got to say amen. You got to say how you doing, brother. You got to give the kiss. You got to make a pie for the picnic. You got to start serving. You got to go to the classes. This is the mark of a Christian, right? No, the mark of a Christian is first and foremost, Christ is doing that work from the inside out. And it's a supernatural work. It's not that we're becoming robots and now we learn the Christianese and we know when to sit down and when to stand up, how long to be at service, 
when to pray and not, when not to pray. Know that in, from the inside out, Christ is doing that work, that we're being sanctified. We can be reminded of the disciples when Christ is washing their feet. And Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And what does he tell him? Hey, you don't let me wash your feet. You got nothing to do with me. You have no fellowship with me. The same is true for us, family. If we're not allowing Christ to sanctify us and cleanse us and purify us, in a sense, we can't have any part with him. We can't have any part with him. So are we being sanctified? Because then we get what? We get this great joy that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. He's our family member. Anybody here ever really desired and wanted a big brother? Anybody here? Everybody's happy? Okay, that's good, right? Well, guess what? Jesus is our big brother. He's willing to say, hey, that's my little brother. That's my little sister, right? Those moments when someone's picking on you and you wish you had a big brother or a big sister to step in and protect you, that's who Christ is. He's willing to be called our brother. And again, the shame that's entailed with that, right? Some of us, we don't even want to call our family family. And yet we're not just talking about one guy that's kind of weird and then uh, I don't want to be associated with that weird guy, right? But you're talking about God, perfection, creator of heaven and earth, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, in out of time, amazing, incredible, and then us. Nothing but dirt. Nothing but dust. At best we get to live, I don't know who the oldest person is, 115 years, right? I don't want to live 115 years. But at best you live 115 years compared to be eternal all-knowing, all-powerful. We forget where we put our phones. We forget where we put our keys. We forget our kids' names, right? You, you, you come over here, right? And yet Christ is willing to say, no, man, that's my little brother. That's my family member. And again, what kind of a love should we have for the body of believers? That if Christ is willing to associate with me, I should be more than willing to associate with anyone here who is part of the body of Christ. Christ calls us brothers and sisters. Again, that's amazing. We should take great heart in that. We should take great hope in that. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Again, family, we said it. He took on flesh and blood for us. He took on all of our shame, all of our iniquities. He took on all of our problems to save us. To save us from death, to save us from fear, to release us from the power of Satan. Again, we can think that when we live our own lives, when we make our own decisions, that we're serving ourselves. I used to think that a long time, right? I'm the man. I do whatever I want. I do whatever I feel like. I bow the knee to no one. But when we live that life, truly, you're just an agent of the devil. Satan is just using you. He's abusing you, and he's using you to wreck other people's lives, including your own. But now Christ is willing to adopt us and take us on. 
to free us from that bondage, to flee, to free us from that slavery. Again, do we see it as simply a gift or do we see it as a great salvation? Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, we'll read verse 12 through 17. It says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you lived according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Again, Christ didn't save us for us to again be under bondage of sin or for us to again be under the bondage of fear or anxiety. That's not Christ's will in our lives. So again, for us as believers, as today, many Christians, probably many of you here, myself included, we can at times be just owned by fear. We can just be trapped by our own anxieties. And what we're doing is we're not trusting in God. We're not saying, Lord, you are the one that you have my days numbered. God, you're not the one that has my life in your hands. God, you're not the one that has the power of life and death in your hands. And we can go through different fears, different anxieties. What's going to happen at my job? What's going to happen in school? Am I ever going to get married? Or what's going to happen to our kids? We need to trust in the Lord. We need to have that freedom, being reminded the perfect God, the perfect dad adopted me into his family. Pure perfection adopted me into his family. I have a perfect dad. What do I have to be fearful of? I have to be fearful that I'm not neglecting my salvation. I have to be fearful that I'm not drifting away. Those are the things we need to be concerned about. We have to be concerned, Lord, am I obeying you? Am I in your will? We can turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Again, the warning to us of the, the bondage of fear that Christ has freed us from by his death and resurrection on the cross and in the tomb. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Here the warning is that we're not taken again under a yoke of slavery to living against a certain rules and regulations to appease God. Or living against a certain rules and regulations that are going to make me one day holy enough to get into heaven. But that we live in, again, freedom. That Christ has come to set us free. That he's come to deliver us from the curse of sin, from the curse of death, from the curse of fear. Christ, by delivering us from the curse of God against our sins, has taken from death all that made it formidable. Death, viewed apart from Christ, man, it can only fill you with horror if the sinner dares to think about it. Right? For the unbeliever, death, it is, it's final. 
And that's for believers that don't even believe in hell. It's final. It's done. There's nothingness. There's just darkness. And it can freak people out. But for us, like Paul says, it's going on a cruise. It's going on to perfection. It's going to a graduation, right? Graduation day, what does that feel like? Oh, my goodness, all these years of hard work are finally done. This season of my life is finally done, and now I can move over. That's how the believer should be looking at death. All that work is finally gone. Again, when we're in heaven, not only do we get to see him face to face, not only do we get to see the marks in his hand and the mark in his side, but we're also free from this constant battle of our flesh and spirit. In heaven, we don't have to be on our guard saying, Zach, don't mess this up, right? Zach, don't give in to your flesh. Don't cut off that person in the highway. Don't do that thing. Zach, don't think those thoughts. Zach, don't say those things. We don't have to be in that battle anymore. We get to be completely relaxed in heaven. It's a graduation. For some of us here, right, more than others, it's a graduation from the, the physical frailties that we're dealing with. How our bodies over time, they betray us. And for some of us, it's a lot harder and difficult to live than others. And salvation, heaven, it's freedom from that. That's what I think of for my father-in-law. That's what I think for my grandmother. It is freedom from that. My kids, they were cracking up. And I was like, yeah, I was running around in heaven. They were like, what? Right? I've never seen her walk more than two miles an hour, much less running, right? What does that look like? She used to run me over with the car, but man, she's running? What does that look like, right? Again, the freedom that there is in Christ, the freedom that there is in heaven, that we have a hope. Again, going through the book of Acts, that we're reminded if we're in the will of God, we're untouchable. We're untouchable. Now, be wise in that. Don't tempt the Lord your God. But if we're in the will of God, we're untouchable. You see the men through the book of Acts, they're in prison. An angel takes them out and they go right back preaching the gospel. Family for us, Christ is the one who holds our life all together. If we're in his will, man, you're untouchable. That should be our life's goal. Now we need to be wise. We need to be filled with the spirit. We need to be seeking him, seeking his word to make sure that we're in the will of God. But that we're untouchable. And this is all because Christ became a man and died for our sins. Charles Spurgeon, he says, We know that had he only been God, yet still he would not have been fitted for a perfect Savior. There when it says Christ being made perfect, it's not because he was imperfect. It wasn't because he was 50% or 95%. No, it's that he is our perfect Savior because he became like a man. The quote continues, unless he had become a man, man had sinned and man must suffer. It was man in whom God's purpose had been for a while defeated. It must be in man that God must triumph over his great enemy. Christ, he became a man for us, for our sins, for our transgressions again. And we are released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Family, be free from that. Have joy in that. That's one of the greatest signs that we can show to other people that we really are a believer. I'm not afraid of dying. Right? There's a great quote. I believe it was Billy Graham's father-in-law. He says, you can't really live life until you're ready to die. You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. You're just not. Family, are you ready? 
Are you ready today to meet Christ? Does that bring you joy? Does that bring you comfort? Again, First and Second Thessalonians, these words should bring you comfort. Not freaking out, not going crazy, not sackcloth and ashes. It should bring us peace. It should bring us comfort. The fear of death, it rules as a tyrant over humanity. And some try to make peace with death by calling it their friend. Right? There's some people, they dress all in black. They have crossbones, skulls. We look at Halloween today and you're in the ER. You're on life support and what's all around you? Skulls and tombstones, right? Our culture has embraced death. They make it seem like it's cute and it's so cute when kids are drawn as zombies with makeup and blood falling from them. But Christians have no fear of death, though perhaps a fear of dying. Not because death is their friend, but because it is defeated by Christ. And now it serves God's purpose in the believer's life. What death and the, the concern of death in our life should bring is a greater fire for the gospel. A greater fire for following the Lord. That's what the fear of death should bring us. Not saying, oh my goodness, I'm going to die, what's going to happen? But oh my goodness, I'm going to die soon. Am I serving the Lord as hard as I can? Am I keeping something in the tank, right? We've all seen those football games when the coaches, they leave with all three of their timeouts. You don't get to do anything with that. It's a waste. Call them for fun. Get an extra break. Get some more Gatorade, right? And for many believers, we leave this life holding on to things that we're not going to take with us. May we burn it all out for the Lord. May we give it all out for him. Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted. Again, family, when you're being tempted, when you're struggling with sin, call on the Lord. Call on Christ. Call on your other brothers and sisters. Don't call them after the fact. Call them before the fact, right? When is it best to call someone when you're about to be robbed? Beforehand, not afterwards, right? You see the robber? That's the time to call 911. That's the time to start yelling, right? Not after you've been beaten up and taken advantage of. Hey, I saw a robber for about 15 minutes. What happened? Oh, yeah, he robbed me. He took advantage of me. I fell. The temptation came and I fell. No, we need to call. We need to plead. We need to ask the Lord beforehand in the midst of the temptation. And again, Christ, he's greater than the angels. And again, the blessing and comfort to us. He's not giving aid and help to the angels, but he's giving aid and help to us, his brothers, his sisters, his sons and daughters. Again, he is a faithful high priest. He knows our pains. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what you're going through. Are we crying out to him? Are we calling out to him? And again, that's why Christ, man, he is the best. He's better than anything. He's better than anyone. Are we holding on to him like that, family? Are we holding on to him like that? Again, may we not neglect him. May our salvation not just be some free gift that somebody else paid for, so now we don't cherish it, we don't take care of it, 
and it gets neglected, and it just gets wasted away. When we could have taken such great advantage of it, the advantage of having a peace that goes beyond understanding, the advantage of having a friendship with God, the advantage of having a relationship with God, the advantage of having brothers and sisters that stick closer than your own family. These are all advantages in owning our relationship with Christ. Christ. 